late in, in interesting ways. I'm, I'm interested in Disraeli's religion, uh, his confessional positioning, and his, his theological epistemology. Um, as Simon mentioned, I come from an English literature and, and church history background, and I'm most interested in the way that, that faith and ecclesiastical structures changed in the course of the 19th century and, and how those changes found shape in, in the literature and the liturgy of the period. And I surprise people when I swiftly introduce Disraeli's name in that context. Um, but, but actually, I think it, it makes a lot of sense. And I guess one of my, my arguments uh, is that Disraeli's religious thought as just that, not his, religion, not his political behavior with regards to the church or even to, as, as Jonathan's talked about, the East, um, but, but actually what he believed or didn't believe um, religiously, that aspect, I think, has gone curiously unnoticed in favor of constructions of Disraeli as the unprincipled uh, arch-pragmatist and the, the master self-fashioner. And I guess I'm, I'm most interested in how those interpretations of Disraeli um, sit alongside, or rather how we can negotiate within that Disraeli, that narrative of Disraelian expediency and sort of playful self-invention. How can we negotiate that Disraeli was um, a baptized Jew, obviously, even though as uh, he didn't like the word conversion, a practicing Christian, and, and as we've just seen in, with Tancred and a lot of mention of Alroy and other novels, a writer of, um, I think it's fair to say, religious novels, novels that dealt centrally, uh, whose central themes uh, um, were religious. And what I want to discuss today is really um, historiographical, and I want to talk about three trends that I see in the, the literature of Disraeli's Judaism in particular. Um, and I think, as I was thinking, as Jonathan was speaking about Tancred, that actually the trends that I'm going to point out uh, are the, the criticism of Tancred is almost a microcosm of the, of the t criticism of Disraeli's Judaism. Um, the first trend also comprises the thrust of, of my argument, and that is that Disraeli's earliest biographers, uh, and I'm going to talk about J.A. Froude and um, a guy called Alexander Charles Ewald in particular, Disraeli's earliest biographers showed a sensitivity, I think, to the salience of the Jewish religion to Disraeli's ideology, a salience that has been somewhat buried or overshadowed, um, has been somewhat buried or, or overshadowed in more recent literature. Froude and Ewald, as I'll discuss, placed Disraeli's Judaism at the center of his intellectual system. And what's more interesting even to me is that they situated Disraeli's unconventional confessional identity on the spectrum of Victorian belief, in which oscillations between faith and doubt, and further in which undulations between Judaism and Christianity, um, for lack of a better word, were allowable, were more commonplace than we might sense with a 20th century or 21st century kind of historiographical mind. Um, and I, I think when we revisit that evolving landscape of Victorian Britain, that evolving religious landscape of Victorian Britain, and when we resituate it, resituate within it, Disraeli's seemingly eccentric medley of Judaism and Christianity, we find it would have appeared, I think, less anomalous um, than we might have presumed. Contemporaneous accounts of Disraeli and, of course, Disraeli's own writing show him self-consciously engaged in a 19th century religious atmosphere that fluidly allowed for both skepticism and doubt on the one hand and the insistence on the prevailing wisdom of religious tradition and religious truth on the other. Within that religious atmosphere, 
I want to suggest that Disraeli's ceaseless engagement with Judaism throughout his writings, and not just Jewishness as a race or as a self-styled identity, but actually even biblically informed religious Judaism, uh, was noticed by his contemporaries and by his early biographers. So that first trend, uh, 19th century predominant understanding of Disraeli's <laughs> Judaism as religiously serious um, and as integral, of course, to his Christianity, changed later in the 20th century and gave way to the second movement uh, I want to talk about. And I think this happened after Money, Penny, and Buckle um, in the 1920s, but I'm really interested in your feedback on that. From that moment, uh, historical, down, historical writing downplayed Disraeli's Judaism, instead painting him as a Gentile English eccentric whose aristocratic appetites transformed what could have been an awkward racial stigma into an exotic attribute and formed him into this perfect Victorian orientalist imperialist. In the histories of Morris Edmund Spear, as uh, Jonathan mentioned, 1924, um, Hannah Arendt, Arthur Frietz, Robert Blake, and Isaiah Berlin, and more recently even um, Ivan Davidson Kalmar in an article from 2005, um, in these histories, Disraeli wasn't a Jew. He was a romantic Orientalist whose fascination with the Jews was largely in keeping with a broader Victorian aestheticism. In the words of Arthur Frietz in his little-known monograph on Disraeli's religion, which was published in 1961, Disraeli was, quote, a Jew of an imagined racial aristocracy, not a Jew of the Torah, because he showed little knowledge of or interest in Jewish ritual or practice. So rabbinic Judaism, then, the Jews of the Torah, was separated, of course, from these kind of odd Jewish fantasies that Disraeli espoused in his novels. And that separation and the overall sort of subduing of Disraeli's Judaism occurred, I think, for a variety of, of sort of obvious historiographical reasons, namely shifts in historical writing about Judaism in the post-Holocaust period and also the rapid onset of multiculturalism in 1960s Britain. Now, in reaction to those mid-20th century sort of muted representations of Disraeli's Jewishness, um, what Todd Endelman and Tony Kushner have called the banishing of Disraeli's Jewishness, recent writers have intentionally, of course, switched their focus to, to the third shift that I see happening, and that is the complexity of Disraeli's Jewish identity. Most notably, Disraeli's Jewishness, the volume that was uh, published in 2002, edited by Endelman and Kushner. As we know, it contains seven essays which discuss strikingly new understandings of Disraeli's individual and psychological conception of his own racial and cultural identity as a, Jewish, as a, as a Jew um, and, and an Anglican convert, representations of his Jewish appearance in Victorian visual culture, the fashion of himself as an elite Sephardi Jew and the, the kind of connection between Sephardi Judaism and aristocracy, his manifold statements about the Jews as a superior race, the anti-Jewish slurs that he deflected during political campaigns, and the overall unlikeliness of a Jew gaining access to elite British political and social society. Now, these new emphases and understandings of Disraeli's Jewishness are significant, and they're hard won, uh, as Endelman and Kushner remarked in their, in their introduction. By the last decade of the century, Disraeli's Jewishness was again integral to English accounts of his life and fiction. Broadly speaking, though, it seems to me that this recent literature, this new emphasis on this kind of kaleidoscopic Jewish identity, 
uh, comes to a twofold theory about the nature of, Jew- of Israeli's Jewishness and the reason that he foregrounded his Jewishness in seemingly inexpedient contexts. So the first part of that twofold theory, Disraeli's understanding of his Jewishness was primarily racial. Uh, Jeffrey Harvey rather unequivocally epitomizes this now conventional uh, reading of, of Disraeli's Jewishness in his 2004 edition uh, to Alroy. He says, Disraeli was a Zionist who felt race mattered more than religion. So that's the first part. Second part, that Disraeli was a performative Jew when it suited him. So he championed Jewish supremacy loudly in an effort to invert this potential racial, racial stigma. As Endelman and Kushner have again sort of stated with singularity, the now accepted view of Disraeli's Jewish obsessions is that they constituted a bold, if unusual, strategy to combat his own sense of social inferiority as an outsider in aristocratic Tory circles. <coughs> this new appraisal of Jewish's identity then, um, and the consequent kind of twofold understanding of it as purely racial and expedient, entails, I think, remarkably little discussion of Disraeli's understanding of religious Judaism, uh, despite his significant body of, body of writings about Judaism and its relationship to Christianity and the ways in which he tries to engage in a theological conversation uh, about Judaism. With a, with a couple of exceptions, including uh, Rol- Rolf P. Lesnick's, um, an, an essay that Rolf P. Lesnick published in English-German conference proceedings in 1987, and um, some portions of Sheila A. Spector's introduction to her, her digital edition of Alroy from 2005, I think the outpouring of recent attention on Disraeli's Jewishness has excluded this ex- explicit analysis of his religious position. Um, the extent to which he believed in the religious claims of Judaism and the way that that belief or unbelief fundamentally shaped his subsequent understanding of the self, society, and nation. Um, That recent tide of writing on Disraeli's Jewishness is simply, I think, of a different genre and a different project. One one book reviewer of Disraeli's Jewishness and also um, Bernard Glassman's The Fabricated Jew in Myth and Memory, uh, published 2003, that reviewer said, both books are part of an attempt to understand race and ethnicity as a social construct, an invention worked at by individuals and groups of varying religious and political affiliations in Victorian and post-Victorian Britain. So again, just a simple, a, a, different, a different project uh, altogether, I think. So after, and after a strong outpouring of, of work in that area of kind of racial self-construction, I think Disraeli's performance or fabrication of his Jewishness has become less mystifying and therefore a little bit less pressing than his belief or unbelief in Judaism as a faith and the ways in which it interacted with his Christian faith. It seems to me that this question has, most, has been most sufficiently addressed, rather surprisingly, by Disraeli's earliest biographers, uh, his contemporaries, Victorians actually, who grasped his commitment to Judaism and its central place in his intellectual system and who treated his regard for Judaism as religious. Um, And I think this was largely due to the complex religious identities of the Victorian biographers themselves. Uh, Alexander Charles Ewald, for example, introduced Disraeli's Judaism on the first five pages of his five-volume biography of Disraeli. This is the first of the the volumes. Um, And his interpretation of Disraeli's Judaism shows that in the context of changing Victorian faith, Disraeli's unorthodox Judeo-Christian position, which has been read as religious detachment, uh, was actually far from abnormal. Ewald seamlessly moved between Disraeli's religious statements about God, Moses, and Christ, on the one hand, 
and what he called, quote, the prejudices of race on the other, those, quote, characteristics essentially Hebraic. He moved fluidly between race and religion when talking about Disraeli. And this suggests to me that in a Victorian context, Disraeli's racial and religious Jewishness was related in rather unproblematic ways. Some qualities were considered Hebraic without necessarily being related to Jewish religious belief. Other Jewish qualities arose from a particular understanding of God. Those lines were blurred. Ewald's discussion of Disraeli's Judaism then shows the extent to which Judaism was an inextricable religious and racial identity and that it bled into Disraeli's Christianity and overall personal and political ideology. Uh, Ewald's interpretation of, uh, of Disraeli's religious identity must have been colored by his own experience of Judaism and Christianity as part of a family of evangelists to the Jews in Jerusalem. As Jonathan mentioned, in the 1840s, the first, bishop, the first Anglican bishop of um, Jerusalem is, is instated. And Ewald's, the biographer's father, uh, was born to Jewish parents in 1802, converted to Christianity in 1822, uh, joined the London Society for Promoting Christianity Amongst the Jews and moved to North Africa as a missionary in 1832, was ordained of the Bishop of London, by the Bishop of London before moving to Jerusalem to serve as chaplain to that first Anglican bishop. So Disraeli's biographer, uh, Charles Alexander Yule, was born in Jerusalem in 1842 during his father's tenure there as missionary and chaplain. Yule became a clerk at the Public Record Office in 1860, and from his clerkship in the, in the 1870s, he branched out to write popular texts, histories, biographies, and handbooks, one of which was this life of Disraeli. And Judaism was central enough to Yule's understanding of Disraeli's life. To merit immediate analysis, he began his biography with a contextual section on modern Judaism to explain Disraeli's family background. And, and he sort of takes this historical tone, like, let me, I'll tell you about modern Judaism today. Um, Yule's understanding of the state of Judaism in England certainly reflected his own Christian bias, and we, we know that he was part of a family uh, who believed that the Jews needed gospel and conversion. Despite that problematic interpretation uh, to our own eyes of the state of 19th century British Judaism, however, I think Yule's analysis suggests that Disraeli's free movement between Jewish and Christian doctrine throughout his fictional and political rhetoric was far from anomalous. Yule claimed that the majority of English Jews had departed from Orthodox Jewish theology and taken up an adapted deistic creed that resembled the Christian faith of England. Contemporary Judaism, said Yule, was fast losing its distinctive characteristics. It is gradually developing into a deism. Families like the Disraelis then, that mingled and excelled in non-Jewish arenas, Yule insisted, represented the standard Jewish experience, British Jewish experience, that is. The, quote, precepts of the Talmud and the lore of the rabbis sit lightly upon them, and they live very much as those who are of a different faith around them. For Yule then, Disraeli's Judaism squared very easily with his Christianity. In fact, his Judaism aligned him with Christians and deepened his opposition to new atheistic and scientific accounts of creation. In demonstrating how Disraeli's Judaism contributed to his ideology, Yule cited Disraeli's famous 1864 Apes and Angels speech, uh, probably this, what mo most people would remember as quite a Christian moment in Disraeli's political, uh, political rhetoric. <laughs> Um, this is the first quotation on the handout there. Yule says, We see plainly the influence of his Hebrew origin. 
At no time had the various forms of unbelief, now so fashionable in intellectual quarters, any attractions for him. He was always, as he frankly admitted, on the side of the angels. He never doubted the reality of the Jewish theocracy. He was a firm believer in the divinity of the dispensation which exceeded it. Like the prophets of old, he believed he was under the especial protection of the Most High and that it was his mission to regenerate the condition of his country. And I'm interested in the way that Yule claims that Disraeli's belief in Jewish theocracy provided the backbone of Disraeli's deism uh, and, and thereby kind of comprised his, his grounds for rejecting unbelief. Further, Yule suggested that Disraeli's Judaism was the foundational belief out of which grew his sense of political chosenness. Disraeli's sense of selection did not arise purely from a belief in the racial purity of the Jews. Rather, Yule noticed that it was the Jews' exceptional religious status that had caused Disraeli to champion their aristocracy um, and their superiority. The second quotation says, this is from Yule as well, it was his belief in his race that made him believe in himself. It was because he could lay claims to a descent which made the pedigree of the proudest Norman baron but a creation of yesterday. A man who was of the same family which had pleased the Son of God in his infinite condescension to attach himself had no reason to be ashamed of his birth or to yield precedence to the haughtiest English peer. For Yuld, what other more recent writers have called Disraeli's Jewish chauvinism was rooted in an understanding of the Jews as the people who produced Christ. Judaism was a racial and religious identity that informed the Christianity that Disraeli practiced. The two were not mutually exclusive. And I want to turn now to James Anthony Froude, who produced another detailed analysis of Disraeli's Judaism when he was asked to write A Life of Disraeli in 1890, perhaps not least because Froude's own faith, doubt, dialectic, and overall religious ideology were similarly entangled and misrepresented. Like Yule, Froude positioned Disraeli comfortably within the plethora of religious expression in 19th century Britain, within a religious atmosphere in which he shared the common denominators of a deistic understanding of the origins of the universe and a biblical construal of the nature of divine truth. These were the basis for an increasingly multifarious religious practice. In his re representation of Disraeli, Froude, as uh, Kieran Brady has put it, quote, refused to bow to the pious conventions surrounding such works and provided instead an account that was not only moderately critical, but distinctly modern in its emphasis on its subject's literary talent and psychological treatment. As Brady has shown, not only did Froude begin his text, his biography of Disraeli, with a vicious quotation from Thomas Carlyle, in which Carlyle calls Disraeli a, quote, superlative Hebrew conjurer, spellbinding all the great lords, great parties, great interests of England to his hand. But Froude also set forth many of his own political and ideological criticisms of Disraeli. Despite those criticisms, Froude's distinctly modern biography took seriously Disraeli's claims about Judaism, his boldest claims even. He recognized Disraeli's amalgam Jewish Christian belief as irregular, certainly, and treated it as sort of nebulous, somewhere bef between full conviction and the acceptance of certain truths as more probable than others. Froude claimed that Quote, he regarded Christianity as only Judaism developed, as we've noted, and if not completely true, yet as immeasurably nearer to truth than the mushroom philosophies of the present age. 
I think this handling of Disraeli's faith is unsurprising, considering that J.A. Freud came of age in a family and thereafter in an intellectual climate in Oxford, in which mitigation and negotiation of theological nuances were basically uh, his only choice. Freud's brother, Richard Hurlfreud, as we know, acted as an instrumental member of the early Oxford movement, introducing his two tutors, uh, Newman and Keeble. And in the aftermath of his death, uh, when it was hoped that J.A. Freud would carry on the Tractarian zeal of his brother, Freud's religious position blazingly diverged from his late brother's. As the DNB has put it, he approved the English Reformation and its doctrine, while the German theological scholarship, which Newman and Pusey feared, became more and more attractive to him. Freud's readings and personal um, faith and doubt testimonies showed themselves um, in his Nemesis of Faith uh, from 1849, a copy of which can still be found at Huenden in Disraeli's library. As Jane Garnett has shown, Freud's belief was transformed by various experiences in his early life, by his reading of Carlyle, by the by the interrogation of the faith of his youth, by these the faith of his youth, excuse me, by opposing theological currents at Oxford, and by his encounter with a living, practically applied evangelicalism in um, in a family that he lived with in Ireland in the eighteen forties. The result was that, as Garnet has put it, quote, Freud came to feel the importance of considering religion less as a set of dogmas which one holds than as a reality which upholds one. And Garnet's quote also said that, that he, uh, Carlyle joined Morris and Kingsley in, in, in realizing this, this thing about belief. And I want to suggest that Disraeli's Judaism and his religious relationship to Judaism can be very interestingly situated into this context of Victorian belief. And I think, indeed, Freud placed, placed Disraeli's confessional position there in his own biography where recent scholarship has seen them as self-serving assertions of racial superiority, Freud took Disraeli's claims about Judaism as statements of religious conviction. He read Tancred, for example, as Disraeli fictionally, but consciously, participating in a wider debate about, spirit, about spiritual regeneration as a necessary combatant against new scientific accounts of creation. For Freud, Disraeli's aim in Tancred was to restore genuine religious belief to the British aristocracy, Freud says, the Tractarians were saying the same things in tones of serious religious conviction. Disraeli, the politician and the man of the world, was repeating in a tone which wavered between mockery and earnestness, the mockery perhaps being used as a veil to cover feelings more real than they seemed. In his analysis of Disraeli's Lord George Bentinck um, from 1852, in which Disraeli, from a political treatment of his late friend Bentinck, departed into a famously strange detailed Jewish apologetic, Freud pointedly presented Disraeli's religious attachments as imprecise, but no less firm. Disraeli's Judeo-Christian belief was sincere, certainly, but shaded by skepticism and vagueness. This is Freud on, on chapter 24. Freud's analysis of the chapter began, the most important fact to every man is his religion. If we would know what a man is, we ask what notions he has formed about his duty to man and to God. For Freud, in chapter 24 of Bentinck, Disraeli had asked that question of himself, and he had answered it unabashedly. Disraeli, in his book, writes Freud, invites attention to his own views. An insincere profession on such a subject forfeits the respect of everyone, and we are entitled to examine what he says and to inquire how far he means it. Freud's own 
text then becomes one of discerning, examining whether Disraeli believed in what we, quote, generally call the creed of science or whether he believed that God created the world and created man to serve him, that he gave a man a revelation of his law and holds him answerable for disobedience to it. Froude expressed the outcome of this examination, this interrogation of Disraeli's religious belief, unambiguously. And this is the final uh, quotation on your handout. Disraeli, with a confessed pride in belonging himself to the favored race, desires us to understand that he receives with full and entire conviction the fact that a revelation was really made to his forefathers and rejects the opposite speculation as unsupported by evidence and degrading to human nature. The subject is introduced in an argument for the admission of the Jews to Parliament. He does not plead for their admission on the principle of toleration, which he rejects as indifferentism, but on the special merits of the Jews themselves and on their services to mankind. Froude concluded this section by saying that Disraeli's words may not have the ring of the genuine theological medal, but he prompted his readers to remember that Disraeli's, quote, thoughts on these great subjects ran on Asiatic rather than European lines. And we therefore have no reason to suspect Disraeli of insincerity just because he did not express himself as we do. Ironically, this kind of problematic racial delineation of Freud's, of uh, Freud's kind of racial classification of Disraeli there led him to, I think, quite a nuanced conclusion about Disraeli's religious position. Disraeli's expression of faith was foreign, but Freud explicitly argued that its foreignness never made it disingenuous. And as we saw with Ewald, that foreign quality, if it was an, an interplay between Judaism and Christianity, wasn't even that foreign, really. Freud perceived Disraeli's Judaism as an integral part of this manifold confessional expression. Freud and Ewald are, of course, just two examples of Victorian bio biographers who interpreted Disraeli's Judaism in this way. But I think there's something to be recovered from these Victorian readings of Disraeli's, Jewish, uh, Disraeli's Judaism and his religious thought, the now conventional understanding of Disraeli's Jewishness as a racial, racial and cultural identity have been important. They contribute to our ongoing understanding of Disraeli's many lives. But Disraeli's Judaism can also be situated, I think, within broader intellectual and epistemological currents in the Victorian period. The changing nature of Judeo-Christian belief and practice the inherent religiosity of the romantic, artistic, and literary movement in which Disraeli participated in many of his novels, the nostalgia for a medieval theological purity that informed the Oxford movement and neo-Gothicism, and we see coming out of Disraeli's writings in the 1840s especially, and the evolving conception of providence that shaped the historical discipline and the political sphere. Starting with his earlier biographers and moving through those shifts in Disraeli historiography before turning to his letters and novels and, and political speeches, my project as a whole suggests that Disraeli's fundamental paradigmatic understanding of the individual, the society, and the nation arose in large part from his understanding of Old Testament Judaism, which he learned at a very young age and with which he showed deep engagement uh, in his novels, especially in Alroy, which I look very closely at and which has been mentioned several times today already. Contemporaneous readings of Disraeli's Judaism, like Freud's and, and Yule's, disrupt this narrative of Disraeli as the modern pragmatist, <coughs> almost proto-atheist, who somehow transcended the religious dialectics of his, of his time. Instead, they demonstrate that Disraeli, while cunning in politics and often enigmatic in personality, 
was nevertheless entrenched in Victorian paradigms of religious renewal and religious negotiation in his time of fast-paced intellectual change. Thanks. Thank you.